0: Well, hello, hello, and welcome to the iFormerX podcast. My name is Stuart Haynes, and I'm the editor-in-chief of iFormerX, an online community of practice for ambulatory care and community pharmacists. Our mission is to empower practitioners to apply the best evidence to patient care decisions. Now while evidence from research studies is clearly important to make well-informed decisions, a great clinician. Takes into consideration a number of factors, not just the results of randomized controlled trials. Indeed, several patient specific factors like values and preferences, insurance coverage, and beliefs about medications are all critically important to the shared decision making process. And institutional factors such as formularies, product availability, and access to specialists and specialty services also must be considered. So this year, we've started to experiment with a new educational series that we call complex patient cases. The cases will be largely based on real patients. Of course, no protected health information will be shared on our podcast, but the essential features and facts of the case will be described by ambulatory care pharmacy practice residents, And then we'll ask a panel of experts to tell us what they're thinking about as they hear the case, what additional information they'd like to gather, and what they would potentially do or recommend in the case. Now, these case discussions are intended to be interactive, and our panelists might not always agree with each other, but we hope you, our loyal iFormerX members, will find the discussions informative and helpful. Well, today's complex patient case was developed by Dr. Kelly Ball and Dr. Jonathan Proctor, who are PGY-2 ambulatory care residents with the University of Tennessee Medical Center in Knoxville. And they were coached by their preceptor, Dr. Anna Love, in developing this case. And the case, as you'll soon learn, involves an older gentleman who develops dizziness and hypotension. So, Kelly and Jonathan, welcome. It's a it's so great to have you both on the iFormerX podcast as first-time contributors.
1: Thank you so much for having us, Stuart. We're excited to be here.
2: Thank you so much for having us. Well, I'm looking forward to the discussion. And now our expert panelists. Our, our first
0: panelist is Dr. Morgan Godfrey, who is a clinical pharmacist geriatric specialist at the University of Tennessee Medical Center in Knoxville and assistant professor of pharmacy practice with the UT College of Pharmacy. And our second panelist is Dr. Richard Sylvia, who is a professor of pharmacy practice at the Massachusetts College of Pharmacy in Boston and a psychiatric pharmacy specialist practicing at Codman Square Health Center in Dorchester, Massachusetts. So, Morgan, Rick, thanks for joining us today and participating in today's case discussion.
3: Thank you so much for having me. I am excited to discuss this case with everyone.
4: Yes, looking forward to a a good discussion. Thank you.
3: So Kelly and Jonathan, why don't you get us
0: started by introducing the case?
2: All right. So uh, this was a patient that presented to his primary care physician's office, which is located in a a rural part of our state where most patients are served on either Medicare or our state Medicaid. Our patient is a 78-year-old male. He is here today for hypotension and diabetes follow-up, and his primary care physician has asked us to review his problems with hypotension. He complains that he feels dizzy when he stands up and has symptoms of his heart racing. He has stated he has never passed out, but he feels like he might. He finds it very difficult to rise from a seated or supine position. In addition to type 2 diabetes and dyslipidemia, He also has a history of schizophrenia. Recently, to address his dizziness, his risperidone dose was decreased, and while his blood pressure improved, he began to experience auditory hallucinations. He does not have a blood pressure cuff at home. He is not regularly checking his blood glucose, but when he does check, he states his readings are usually between 120 and 140. In addition to our clinic, he is also actively followed by a psychiatrist.
1: Another thing that may be important to know is he is disabled, secondary to his schizophrenia. So his income is completely through his disability benefits, and he is on our state Medicaid. Currently, his sister is his primary caregiver and accompanies him to all of his appointments as well as handles his medications. So some of those medications that he's currently taking, he is on insulin, a long-acting degludec, Delmetformin. He's on respiridone two milligrams BID at the time of the visit, and then has several other medications in his current list. Of note, at this visit today, his blood pressure is increased. It's at 104 over 74, so that's better than when the PCP saw him earlier two weeks ago. It was 96 over 60. He does still have some tachycardia at 103 today. The only other thing we got was a urinalysis. So that did show quite a bit of bacteria in his urine. Anything
3: else that you would like to know? Thank you guys for all that information. So he is presenting primarily for a diabetes and hypotension follow-up. So some information that I would like to have about him is, though so you mentioned his medications that he's on, that he's on an insulin deglutic, as well as a metformin. So do we have an A1C updated for him?
2: His most recent A1C, and I I sadly do not have an exact date for it, but his most recent A1C was 7.8%.
3: 7.8%. Okay, that was helpful. Also, did you mention what dose of insulin of that deglutic he's on?
2: Currently, he's only taking 10 units each day.
3: So... Overall, his most important finding that I see is his difficulty rising and his experiencing some orthostatic hypotension. So, holistically looking at the patient, there's certainly some, some questions that I have. Do we have a comprehensive medication list for this patient?
2: Yes. Would, would you like me to read the whole list off with doses and everything?
3: Yeah, I think that would be helpful.
2: So he is taking insulin degladec at uh, 10 units daily. Metformin is 500 milligrams three times a day. Resuvastatin 20 milligrams daily. Litanoprost um, 0.005%, one drop into both eyes daily. Risperidone 2 milligrams twice a day. He does take a multivitamin every day. Uh, and he takes hydroxyzine 10 milligrams as needed.
3: Thank you. So, okay, so hydroxyzine, take one tablet as needed. So do we know what the indication for that one is?
2: We do not have that information.
3: Okay, so I think that that's a great place to start, just looking at the presence of orthostasis in this patient. So hydroxyzine and other antihistamine are noted on the BEERS list for potentially inappropriate medications because they can potentially cause some orthostasis. So I would be curious what his indication for that is. It could be for anxiety. Uh, Some patients take it off label for pain. So asking him some pointed questions about the indication for that can help. And maybe we can help him find an alternative. And one other question that I had would be about the urinalysis that you mentioned that you collected So what was the indication for collecting the urinalysis at this visit, and what were the results?
2: The uh, urinalysis was collected to assess for albuminuria in this patient, but notably was positive for a moderate amount of bacteria that reflexed to a culture and resulted in 100,000 CFUs with pan-susceptible E. coli. As far as the albuminuria, his microalbuminuria value was 4.1 and the albumin to creatinine ratio was 6.
4: Thank you. I was also going to ask a question about the hydroxyzine, so thank you for, for covering that. I do have a couple of questions. Do we have any idea regarding the patient's hydration status? One thing that we often see, particularly with meds like Risperdal that have alpha-1 antagonist effects, is that if they're fluid depleted in any way dehydrated, that can also impact their blood pressure status. So just wondering if we had any information regarding their fluid hydration status.
1: That is a really good point. We did not assess that at this visit.
4: Okay. That that might be something we would want to look into, especially depending on the time of year. The summer, hotter weather, sweating more, dehydration is a bigger issue. The other question I had is if we have any discernible blood pressure differences between when the patient was on the lower dose of Risperdal, do we know which of those readings are from what doses of Risperdal? So trying to identify, did lowering the dose actually objectively help with the problem? We know the patient said subjectively it helped, but do we have any objective data supporting
1: So we have some objective data that showed that his blood pressure did slightly increase. So I believe the visit one, he was on the higher dose of Risperdal, the 96 over 60, and then the second visit of 104 over 74, he was on the lower dose but experienced auditory hallucinations. So we got some blood pressure increase.
4: And were orthostatics specifically checked or just seated blood pressure?
1: Traditional seated blood pressure.
4: Okay. So, you know, having those orthostatic measurements would also be helpful to see, is this potentially related to the known alpha blockade related to risperidone? And then the final question would be, he said that his auditory hallucinations worsened. Do we know to what extent was he having any previously at all, even if On a rare occasion, when on the higher dose of risperidone. Again, just trying to get a measure of how much did his psychosis worsen by the drop?
1: Yes. So this patient had been controlled without any auditory hallucinations or any other symptoms of his schizophrenia um, until the drop of the risperidone dose. So the return of the auditory hallucinations was definitely new and something that was pretty concerning to the patient and to his sister.
4: Understandable. Those are the questions I have at this point. Thank you very much for that additional information.
0: Yeah. So I got to admit, I'm not, I don't deal with any psychotics very often in my practice. So I'm wondering how frequently risperidone causes dizziness and symptomatic hypotension. I mean, if it's pretty common, what are the best strategies to prevent it from occurring? And if it occurs, what's the best way to manage it?
4: So I would say it, it is something that is pretty common. Resperidone, even at low doses, can be a potent alpha-1 antagonist, which, as we know, is classically linked to orthostatic hypotension, but also hypotension in general. Where he's taking the med twice a day, you're having that relatively consistent blockade of those receptors. So not surprising that we're getting the effect throughout the day. In a lot of patients, they may take their Risperidone all clustered at one time in the evening. And our main concern is then having orthostasis overnight or first thing in the morning. And one of the things we can do is counsel them that when they get out of bed, take their time. As I tell my patients, don't jump out of bed because you go from lying to standing to face planting. And that's obviously not what we want to have happen with a 78-year-old patient or with any of our patients. So take their time, go from lying to sitting, wait, allow for that blood pressure to re-equilibrate itself, then go from sitting to standing, staying close to the bed. Again, giving yourself 30, 60 seconds, whatever it might be, letting that blood pressure reset And then moving forward. So sometimes it can be managed simply by counseling the patient on how to avoid that risk of orthostasis and dizziness and accompanying falls. As far as other methods, maintaining fluid status, making sure they're drinking water, other fluids consistently, keeping their fluid volume at an adequate level to help counterbalance any of that orthostatic effect from the risperidone. And ultimately, if it really comes down to it, we can make dose adjustments as was tried with this patient's case and unfortunately was not successful related to his worsening psychosis. We may need to ultimately change meds if it's truly problematic for the patient. And, you know, there are potentially other methods, but realistically, most of those measures will get us what we need.
3: I do not have a lot to add, as I certainly don't work a ton with antipsychotics either. So thank you very much for that explanation, Rick.
2: Would you consider something like metadrin or plugicortisone to increase the patient's blood pressure in this case?
3: That's a great question, Jonathan. So of course, with geriatrics, what I try to focus my practice around is limiting these patients' medication lists as much as I possibly can just to Hopefully, not give them any additional side effects and also limit their pill burden. So, I see a lot of orthostasis and a lot of falls with patients that are experiencing orthostasis. So, when I am looking at these patients and trying to ultimately drill down to what the cause is, I like to eliminate all other potential causes of these orthostatic episodes before I add additional medications. So, Rick had mentioned earlier, I think hydration is super important. It is very common that these patients become dehydrated and then they don't have adequate venous return. And then often that causes them to get dizzy and fall. And then they'll present to the hospital with fractures or other trauma events. So I think that solving that is, a, is often kind of a low-hanging fruit that we can fix pretty easily with some questions and counseling on, on good hydration practice. Second, that's why I was asking about his medication list earlier. So I had mentioned this already, but I would love to drill down the indication for that hydroxyzine and potentially see if the patient could do without that, because that could also be contributing to some of his issues.
4: Yeah, just to build a little bit more off of that, I, I agree. I'm not a fan of piling more meds on, especially to use one med to essentially treat another med or a side effect of another med. I I would also try looking at some of the more non-pharmacologic methods. But uh, one thing that has been tried, not so much with risperidone, but with clozapine is using salt tablets, plain old sodium chloride tablets, using that natural presser effect of increasing the patient's sodium levels. And that sometimes will get us what we need to help stabilize any low blood pressures or orthostasis. It's kind of old school, but sometimes old school is what is needed. My concern with using mitodrin or flugicortisone would be the patient's psychiatric status. We know that corticosteroids as an adverse effect can affect mental status, in particular causing psychosis and, and some other mental status changes. Flugicortisone is not very likely to do it, but still, again, as Morgan mentioned, if it's a med that's not needed why go to it midodrine i do not have much experience with at all i understand where theoretically it could be useful but again is that it, do we really want to look to add another med to treat the side effect of another med if we can manage that side effect through other methods
3: one additional thing i would like to mention about the flutocortisone that would make it less ideal in this patient would be the presence of his diabetes So he's on medications for diabetes with an A1C of about seven, I believe you said 7.8 is this patient's A1C. So according to American Geriatric Society recommendations, a good goal A1C for geriatrics patients that that are relatively healthy with a life expectancy of greater than 10 years is to target an A1C of about seven and a half to eight. So he is right in that goal range. So I, didn't, I do not want to give this patient any medications that could alter his A1c because he's right where I want him to be. So I think avoiding flutocortisone would be beneficial for that reason as well. Those are all really great
1: points. So I guess I'm thinking if these different tactics don't work to increase his blood pressure, would you all consider switching to a different antipsychotic? I know given the patient's age, are there maybe some other choices that might be safer for him to use? And if so, which agents would you consider? And then how would we manage that transition from risperidone to something else?
4: So, and I kind of mentioned this in my last answer, It, it might very well come down to that the only way that we can treat this patient safely would be to try changing antipsychotics. There are differences among them in the risks of causing orthostasis or alpha-1 blockade. They are not equipotent at that receptor by any means. There are a variety of antipsychotics that are much lower risk, aripiprazole, loracidone. There are a variety of others that could potentially be used in its place. And the other added benefit by changing agents is they are also a little bit more friendly metabolically in terms of glucose and lipid changes and weight gain. So, that might be another reason to consider changing in this patient. However, we also want to keep in mind the patient's mental status. As I tell my own students all the time, we don't want to trade mental health for physical health or vice versa. So, we could consider doing if our other strategies truly don't work. We could consider doing a crossover to one of those other alternative atypical antipsychotics, probably want to do so slowly and carefully. Again, keeping a close eye on the patient's mental status, perhaps making minor dose changes every few weeks or even every once a month. That way it gives us time to see any resultant changes in the patient's overall status. But I'd want to have a little bit more background history on the patient. Being 78 years old, I would imagine he's tried a number of other antipsychotics over the years, What has been his history of success and failure, adverse effects and so forth, which potentially help guide our treatment selection if we did come to the decision of making an antipsychotic change?
3: Yeah, I certainly agree with Rick. So I would love to have some more information about this patient's psychiatric history and what other things he has tried. So certainly with the patient being the age he is of 78, I think that we have to be careful with which antipsychotics we choose. So I think that the ones that Rick mentioned are great choices. So seeing if he has tried and or failed some of those can help guide our decision. Given that he has been stable for so long on this Risperidone, I would love to be able to stick with it if we could potentially make some other small changes to try to help solve this hypotension issue that he's having without having to switch agents. So, I would prefer to stick with that if possible.
2: So, looking at the urinalysis, this suggests the patient might have a UTI. I'm wondering if we should prescribe a short course of Bactrin. Should I recommend something to his primary care physician?
3: Great question, Jonathan. So, this is a hot topic among the practitioners that I work with. So, the IDSA recommends that we do not treat asymptomatic bacteriuria. So we all want to be good stewards of our antimicrobials and we want to not prescribe them unless they're absolutely necessary. So that is always at the forefront of my mind as a practitioner. The, the problem that specifically presents with our geriatric patients is that defining symptoms can be difficult. So when we think about normal UTI symptoms, we think pain, we think urgency. However, for our geriatric patients, it's a lot more common that they present with altered mental status and sometimes dizziness and even hallucinations can be part of the symptomatology of urinary tract infections in older adults. So it's Often, a diagnosis that is missed in these patients because it can can concomitantly go along with other diagnoses that the patient has. We try to do the best we can to narrow down whether or not the patient is truly having urinary symptoms, but oftentimes we will treat these patients if they're having persistent altered mental status or persistent hallucinations or other issues that we aren't able to explain for other reasons. So, Looking back at this specific patient for this patient case, given that he is having this hypotension, which could potentially be tied in with this urinary tract infection, and he's also having some hallucinations that also could potentially be explained by us having lowered his risperidone dose, I do think it's worth bringing up to the patient's PCP. And maybe asking him some more pointed questions about, is he having any specific urinary symptoms or not? And that can maybe help us guide whether to treat this urinary, potential urinary tract infection or not.
4: So, I will admit UTIs are certainly not in my usual frame of reference for when I treat patients. However, in the elderly, if it is a true UTI, we can start to see mental status changes and this is really reaching a little bit, is there the potential that some of these auditory hallucinations are being brought on by a potential UTI? I admit fully, it's a bit of a stretch, but certainly something we would want to rule out before making any final determinations on the patient's status. Typically, hallucinations are not what we see with UTIs. It's more just general mental status changes, potentially combativeness, disorientation. But something again, if we we really want it to reach a little bit, just making sure we're not missing something in the patient's presentation.
0: All right. Well, this has been a terrific discussion today. And Jonathan, Kelly, Rick, Morgan, I want to thank you so much for participating in the podcast and walking us through this very interesting case. I'm wondering what our listeners would do. Would any of you in our audience consider doing something differently? Are there additional pieces of information, labs perhaps, or questions you'd ask this patient? Well, you can weigh in on this case by posting a comment on the iFormRx website. Only iFormRx members can post comments and use the interactive features. If you're not already a member of iFormRx, sign up today. It's free to health professionals and students and residents and fellows. And if you happen to be a board-certified ambulatory care pharmacist and you want to earn board recertification credit through the American Pharmacists Association, well, you can. We've partnered with APHA to produce their literature evaluation and evidence-based practice series. And you can learn more about the APHA's ambulatory care prep and recertification program by clicking on the link at the bottom of the written case, which is on our website. And lastly, before I sign off today, I want to extend a special thank you to Anna Love, who is an active iFormRx and ACCP AmCare PRN member who recommended this case and worked with Kelly and Jonathan to write the board certification questions. Anna is among the growing number of residency preceptors who are encouraging residents to join and contribute to iFormRx. So thank you, Anna. It's been great to work with you. Until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, editor-in-chief of iFormerX, signing off.